0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Appreciations and Criticisms of the Works of Charles Dickens by G. K. Chesterton Section 13. Chapter 7. Barnaby Rudge barnaby rudge was written by dickens in the spring and the first flowing tide of his popularity It came immediately after the old curiosity shop and only a short time after pickwick dickens was one of those rare but often very sincere men in whom the high moment of success almost coincides with the high moment of youth the calls upon him at the time were insistent and overwhelming This necessarily happens at a certain stage of a successful writer's career. He was just successful enough to invite offers, and not successful enough to reject them. At the beginning of his career he could throw himself into Pickwick, because there was nothing else to throw himself into. At the end of his life he could throw himself into A Tale of Two Cities, because he refused to throw himself into anything else. But there was an intervening period early in his life when there was almost too much work for his imagination, and yet not quite enough work for his housekeeping. To this period Barnaby Rudge belongs, and it is a curious tribute to the quite curious greatness of Dickens, that in this period of youthful strain we do not feel the strain, but feel only the youth. His own amazing wish to write equalled or outstripped even his reader's amazing wish to read. Working too hard did not cure him of his abstract love of work. Unreasonable publishers asked him to write ten novels at once, but he wanted to write twenty novels at once. All this period is strangely full of his own sense at once of fertility and of futility. He did work which no one else could have done, and yet he could not be certain as yet that he was anybody. Barnaby Rudge marks this epic because it marks the fact that he is still confused about what kind of person he is going to be. He has already struck the note of the normal romance in Nicholas Nickleby. He has already created some of his highest comic characters in Pickwick and the old curiosity shop, but here he betrays the fact that it is still a question what ultimate guide he shall follow. Barnaby Rudge is a romantic historical novel. Its design reminds us of Scott. Some parts of its fulfillment remind us, alas, of Harrison Ainsworth. It is a very fine, romantic, historical novel. Scott would have been proud of it, but it is still so far different from the general work of Dickens that it is permissible to wonder how far Dickens was proud of it. The book, effective as it is, is almost entirely devoted to dealings with a certain artistic element which, in its mere isolation, Dickens did not commonly affect, an element which many men of infinitely less genius have often seemed to affect more successfully. I mean the element of the picturesque. It is the custom in many quarters to speak somewhat sneeringly of that element, which is broadly called the picturesque. It's always felt to be inferior, a vulgar, and even an artificial form of art. Yet two things may be remarked about it, The first is that, with few exceptions, the greatest literary artists have been not only particularly clever at the picturesque, but particularly fond of it. Shakespeare, for instance, delighted in certain merely pictorial contrasts, which are quite distinct from, even when they are akin to, the spiritual view involved. For instance, there is an admirable satire in the idea of touchstone, teaching worldly wisdom and worldly honour to the woodland yokels. There is excellent philosophy in the idea of the fool being the representative of civilisation in the forest. But quite apart from this deeper meaning in the incident, the mere figure of the jester, in his bright motley and his cap and bells, against the green background of the forest and the rude forms of the shepherds, is a strong example of the purely picturesque. There is excellent tragic irony in the confrontation of the melancholy philosopher among the tombs with the cheerful digger of the graves. It sums up the essential point, that dead bodies can be comic. It is only dead souls that can be tragic. But quite apart from such irony, the mere picture of the grotesque gravedigger, the black-clad prince and the skull, is a picture in the strongest sense picturesque. Caliban and the two shipwrecked drunkards are an admirable symbol, but they are also an admirable scene. Bottom, with the ass's head sitting in rings of elves, is excellent moving comedy, but also excellent still life. Falstaff with his huge body, Bardolph with his burning nose are masterpieces of the pen, but they would be fine sketches even for the pencil. King Lear in the storm, is a landscape as well as a character study there is something decorative even about the insistence on the swarthiness of othello or the deformity of richard the third shakespeare's work is much more than picturesque but it is picturesque and the same which is said here of him by way of example is largely true of the highest class of literature dante's divine comedy is supremely important as philosophy but it is important merely as a panorama spencer's fairy queens pleases us as an allegory but it would please us even as a wallpaper stronger still is the case of chaucer who loved the pure picturesque which always includes something of what we commonly call the ugly the huge stature and startling scarlet face of the sump is in just the same spirit as shakespeare's skulls and motley the same spirit gave chaucer's miller bagpipes and clad his doctor in crimson. It is the spirit which, while making many other things, loves to make a picture. Now the second thing to be remarked in apology for the picturesque is that the very thing which makes it seem trivial ought really to make it seem important. I mean the fact that it consists necessarily of contrasts. It brings together types that stand out from their background, But are abruptly different from each other like the clown among the fairies or the fool in the forest and his audacious reconciliation is a mark not of frivolity but of extreme seriousness a man who deals in harmonies who only matches stars with angels or lambs with spring flowers he indeed may be frivolous for he is taking one mood at a time and perhaps forgetting each mood as it passes But a man who ventures to combine an angel and an octopus must have some serious view of the universe. The man who should write a dialogue between two early Christians might be a mere writer of dialogues. But a man who should write a dialogue between an early Christian and the missing link would have to be a philosopher. The more widely different the types talked of, the more serious and universal must be the philosophy which talks of them. The mark of the light and thoughtless writer is the harmony of his subject-matter. The mark of the thoughtful writer is its apparent diversity. The most flippant lyric poet might write a pretty poem about lambs, but it requires something bolder and graver than a poet. It requires an ecstatic prophet to talk about the lion lying down with the lamb. Dickens, at any rate, strongly supports this conception that great literary men as such do not despise the purely pictorial. No man's works have so much the quality of illustrating themselves. Few men's works have been more thoroughly and eagerly illustrated. Few men's works can it have been better fun to illustrate. As a rule, this fascinating quality in the mere fantastic figures of the tale was inseparable from their farcical quality in the tale. Stiggins' red nose is distinctly connected with the fact that he is a member of the Ebenezer Temperance Association. Quilp is little, because a little of him goes a long way. Mr. Carker smiles and smiles, and is a villain. Mr. Shadband is fat, because in his case to be fat is to be hated. The story is immeasurably more important than the picture. It is not mere indulgence in the picturesque. Generally, it is an intellectual love of the comic, not a pure love of the grotesque. But in one book, Dickens suddenly confesses that he likes the grotesque even without the comic. In one case, he makes clear that he enjoys pure pictures with a pure love of the picturesque. That place is Barnaby Rudge. There had indeed been hints of it in many episodes in his books, notably, for example, in that fine scene in the death of Quilp, a scene in which the dwarf remains fantastic long after he has ceased to be, in any way, funny. Still, the dwarf was meant to be funny. Humour of a horrible kind, but still humour, is the purpose of Quilp's existence and position in the book. Laughter is the object of all his oddities, but the laughter is not the object of Barnaby Rudge's oddities. His idiot costume and his ugly raven are used for the purpose of the pure grotesque solely to make a certain kind of gothic sketch it is commonly this love of pictures that drives men back upon the historical novel but it is very typical of dickens living interest in his own time that though he wrote two historical novels they were neither of them very ancient history they were both indeed a very recent history only they were those parts of recent history which were especially picturesque. I do not think that this was due to any mere consciousness on his part that he knew no history. Undoubtedly he knew no history, and he may or may not have been conscious of the fact, but the consciousness did not prevent him from writing a history of England, nor did it prevent him from interlarding all or any of his works with tales of the pictorial past, such as the tale of the broken swords in Master Humphrey's Clock, or the indefensibly delightful nightmare of the lady in the stage-coach which helps to soften the amiable end of pickwick neither worst of all did it prevent him from dogmatizing anywhere and everywhere about the past of which he knew nothing it did not prevent him from telling the bells to tell trotty that the middle ages were a failure nor from solemnly declaring that the best thing that the medieval monks did was to create the mean and snobbish quietude of a modern cathedral city. No, it was not historical reverence that held him back from dealing with the remote past, but rather something much better, a living interest in the living century in which he was born. He would have thought himself quite intellectually capable of writing a novel about the Council of Trent or the First Crusade. He would have thought himself quite equal to analyzing the psychology of Abelard or giving a bright, satiric sketch of St. Augustine. It must frankly be confessed that it was not a sense of his own unworthiness that held him back. I fear it was rather a sense of St. Augustine's unworthiness. He could not see the point of any history before the first slow swell of the French Revolution. He could understand the revolutions of the eighteenth century. All the other revolutions of history, so many and so splendid, were unmeaning to him but the revolutions of the eighteenth century he did understand, and to them therefore he went back, as all historical novelists go back, in search of the picturesque. And from this fact an important result follows. The result that follows is this, that his only two historical novels are both tales of revolutions, of eighteenth-century revolutions. These two eighteenth-century revolutions may seem to differ and perhaps do differ in everything except in being revolutions and of the eighteenth century the french revolution which is the theme of a tale of two cities was a revolt in favor of all that is now called enlightenment and liberation the great gordon riot which is the theme of barnaby rudge was a revolt in favor of something which would now be called mere ignorant and obscurantist protestantism nevertheless both belonged more typically to the age out of which dickens came the great skeptical and yet creative eighteenth century of europe whether a mob rose on the right side or the wrong they both belonged to the time in which a mob could rise in which a mob could conquer no growth of intellectual science or of moral cowardice had made it impossible to fight in the streets whether for the republic or for the bible if we wished to know what was the real link existing actually in ultimate truth, existing unconsciously in Dickens' mind, which connected the Gordon riots with the French Revolution, the link may be defined, though not with any great adequacy. The nearest and truest way of stating it is that neither of the two could possibly happen in Fleet Street tomorrow evening. Another point of resemblance between the two books might be found in the fact that they both contain the sketch of the same kind of eighteenth-century aristocrat, if indeed that kind of aristocrat really existed in the eighteenth century. The diabolical dandy with the rapier and the sneer is at any rate a necessity of all normal plays and romances. Hence Mr. Chester has a right to exist in this romance, and Foulon a right to exist in a page of history almost as cloudy and disreputable as a romance. What Dickens and other romancers do probably admit from the picture of the eighteenth-century oligarch is probably his liberality. It must never be forgotten that even when he was a despot in practice, he was generally a liberal in theory. Dickens and romancers make the pre-revolution tyrant a sincere believer in tyranny. Generally he was not. He was a skeptic about everything, even about his own position. The romantic Foulon says of the people, let them eat grass, with bitter and deliberate contempt. The real Foulon, if ever he said it at all, probably said it as a sort of dreary joke, because he couldn't think of any other way out of the problem. Simply Mr. Chester, a cynic as he is, believed seriously in the beauty of being a gentleman. A real man of that type probably disbelieved in that, as in everything else. Dickens was too bracing one may say too, bouncing himself to understand the psychology of fatigue in a protected and leisured class. He could understand a tyrant like Quilp, a tyrant who is on his throne because he has climbed up into it like a monkey. He could not understand a tyrant who is on his throne because he is too weary to get out of it. The old aristocrats were in a dead way, quite good-natured. They were even humanitarians which perhaps accounts for the extent to which they roused against themselves the healthy hatred of humanity but they were tired humanitarians tired with doing nothing figures like that of mr chester therefore fail somewhat to give the true sense of something hopeless and helpless which led men to despair of the upper class he has a boyish pleasure in play-acting he has an interest in life being a villain is his hobby But the true man of that type had found all hobbies fail him. He had wearied of himself as he had wearied of a hundred women. He was graceful and could not even admire himself in the glass. He was witty and could not even laugh at his own jokes. Dickens could never understand tedium. There is no mark more strange and perhaps sinister of the interesting and not very sane condition of our modern literature than the fact that tedium has been admirably described in it our best modern writers are never so exciting as they are about dullness mr rudyard kipling is never so powerful as when he is painting yawning deserts aching silences sleeping nights or infernal isolation the excitement in one of the stories of mr henry james becomes tense thrilling and almost intolerable in all the half-hours during which nothing whatever is said or done we are entering again into the mind into the real mind of fulan and mr chester we begin to understand the deep despair of those tyrants whom our fathers pulled down but dickens could never have understood that despair it was not in his soul and it is an interesting coincidence that here in this book of barnaby rudge there is a character meant to be wholly grotesque who nevertheless expresses much of that element in Dickens which prevented him from being a true interpreter of the tired and skeptical aristocrat. Sim Tappertit is a fool, but a perfectly honorable fool. It requires some sincerity to pose. Posing means that one has not dried up in oneself all the youthful and innocent vanities with that slow paralysis of mere pride. Posing means that one is still fresh enough to enjoy the good opinion of one's fellows. On the other hand, the true cynic has not enough truth in him to attempt affectation. He has never even seen the truth far less tried to imitate it. Now we might very well take the type of Mr. Chester on the one hand and of Sim Tappertit on the other, as marking the issue, the conflict, and the victory, which really ushered in the nineteenth century. Dickens was very like Sim Tappertit. The liberal revolution was very like a Sim Tappertit revolution. It was vulgar, it was overdone, it was absurd, but it was alive. Dickens was vulgar, was absurd, overdid everything, but he was alive. The aristocrats were perfectly correct, but quite dead, dead long before they were guillotined. The classics and critics who lamented that Dickens was no gentleman, or quite right, but quite dead. The revolution thought itself rational, but so did Sim Tappertite. It was really a huge revolt of romanticism against a reason which had grown sick even of itself. Sim Tappertite rose against Mr. Chester, and, thank God, he put his foot upon his neck. End of section 13. The End of Chapter 7 Barnaby Rudge